You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. This is our very first episode back after our summer hiatus 2016. So thank you so very much for downloading this. Our guest today is the incomparable Chris Hastings. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Lewis. I'm excited to be a part of this return episode. I am excited to have you be our first guest after summer hiatus 2016. (laughs) We're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, I'm going to mess with the format a little bit, starting with this episode. Um, So I'll walk you guys through that. But we're basically going to do the conversation in three parts today. We're going to talk as usual for a little bit, and then we're going to do a little thing in the middle called getting to know each other and then uh, uh, we're going to end today's conversation with Chris showing off his improvisational skills <laughs> with a scene of my choosing. I oh get boy. to decide the scene for you to be doing. Great. Um, but let's get right into uh, talking together. So you have, um, for those who don't know, the coolest job in the world. Yes, I agree. You, uh, uh, you are a writer and artist Comics and comic books and comic books, proper superhero comic books. You have written for Deadpool. Yes, I've written several you, Deadpools. You write for Adventure Time. Mm-hmm. You have a very popular character, The Adventures of Doctor McNinja. That's right. Uh, how did you get into it? Oh boy. Um, well, I um, you know I like all children. I drew um, and then um, really enjoyed it, and I guess was good at it. Um, and you know, like, I think I forget who said that, but it's like all children start drawing and then some of them just decide they're bad at it and they Mm. stop. Um, but I didn't. And, um, yeah. And then I always loved, uh, superheroes and comic books and stuff like that. And then as, uh, you know, high school started rolling around, uh, it was time to start thinking about what you're going to be doing with college and, you know, the rest of your life, you know, you decide that as a teenager and, um, I still, it was like, I really only want to draw comics. I think that's what I want to do. And, and there's that phone we were talking beforehand that, about yeah. the technology. That was Evan. That was Evan's computer. That was an iMessage. A joke. Chris was right in the flow of this conversation. Evan screwed it up. I, <laughs> Chris, I want to apologize to you. I accept your apology for Evan's poor behavior. Everyone listening, I want to apologize for the whole rest of this episode. Thank Someone you. Someone at home is saying, I forgive you. All right. As they're jogging or something. <laughs> All right. All right. So, so yeah. So I um I got uh so my art teacher in high school she she had gotten like a course catalog or like some kind of pamphlet for the school of visual arts uh, here in New York City and I think you can see where this story is going now because I went there. Perfect. Um, yeah, but it was like I I saw I was like oh yeah I guess I can think about going to art school. And then I saw that they had a program literally in drawing comics. They have a cartooning program. Um, and I was like, yeah, I want to go to comic book college, please. Um, and my parents like supported that. And I still think that's insane. I tell my mom this all the time. I was like, I don't, you shouldn't have done that. Like mm. that was a very risky maneuver um, because I graduated with a lot of people who do not have careers in comic books now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I went to SVA and like learned from the best comic artists, like teachers. Um, um, comic book fans may know these names, uh, like Klaus Jansen. He uh, he inked the Dark Knight um, Returns, um, and uh, David Mazzucchelli, who drew Batman Year One. I I made a point of studying under Batman artists. <laughs> um, 
And then, um, is that true? Or did I that, did, yeah. I was like, I looked at the, I like, because you, uh, the program at SVA, you, um, they have like a set cartooning program where you're just going to be going through these courses where basically it's kind of broad and it's just like, yeah, you're going to be drawing comic book pages at home. Sometimes we'll assign you scripts. Sometimes you can make up your own story. And then it really is you, you pick which teacher you want. And so like there are more indie comics teachers and there are more mainstreamy superhero comic teachers. And I went for those ones every time because mm-hmm. that was my taste. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had these wonderful teachers who taught me how to draw comics and I drew a ton of comics in college. And um, as I was getting near the end of the program, uh, I it was I was not good enough to draw <laughs> professionally yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still good, like I was I was a competent storyteller. Um, and but like you know, if you're if you're if people want like the best artists drawing Spider Man, like that, and it's very competitive, like uh, working in that field. Um, but I was finding I was really enjoying the writing of the material, and um, particularly like I was already getting bored with like dour superhero stuff. So I was writing like little jokes and stuff in all my comics, mm-hmm. and like I remember the teachers were like, you know, you're a better writer than you are an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh well, I mean that's that's okay. Uh, I'll I do like it. Um, so. As I was getting, I was like, all right, everybody else is gearing up to make their portfolios to submit to Marvel and to DC, where they will ultimately be turned down if they can even somehow meet an editor. Um, So I decided to change my track to go into indie comics, and that's when I started working on Dr. McNinja. Um, And I was like, all right, I'm going to submit these to small publishers, and maybe I'll have a better shot, because I'm like, I saw some of the stuff that was coming out. I'm like, I'm a good enough artist for these guys. Mm-hmm. Like, I can compete in that field. I was wrong. They all turned it down, mm-hmm. um, including Dark Horse, which does publish Dr. McNinja now. Um, and then, uh, so I just decided to start putting it on the internet, and I made it a webcomic, uh, which forced me to do it regularly. I would put up three pages of Dr. McNinja every single week, and I've been doing it for about 11 years since. Um, and then... Um, from there, you start to build a fan base, and um, a couple editors became aware of the comic, and then I eventually started getting hired to write Deadpool, um, and then you know that led to other stuff. The, so you get like you get like called in to the meeting. <laughs> Which meeting? <laughs> like I, I, the meeting with Deadpool himself. It, yeah, yeah, yes. They, <laughs> and he, he that's where they reveal approval. to you that every fictional character is actually real, mm-hmm. and you're simply following them around and transcribing verbatim what they do. Yeah, it's a lot less interesting than other writing jobs where you get to make stuff up. Yes, it's a real, real drag. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I was gonna, I was ready to pretend how fun it is writing comic books in this conversation, but. We blew the lid right off. Let's be real. Here it is, folks. Let's be real. I blame. Following Superman around is really boring. Yes. Especially when he goes off into space. He just calls back. You can't actually follow him. It's... <laughs> he tells you what Ugh. he's doing. He describes it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's very literal. He's not very good. He doesn't conjure a picture. He just like gives you facts that don't seem related to a big picture. But Clark, Clark, use your... This is a visual medium. Please just... All right. We'll, we'll figure it out. Have you ever read It's Superman by Tom DeHaven? No, I haven't. It's a, like a novel set in the 30s uh, uh, to give like the origin of Superman. And one of the things in it is Clark Clark writes for his high school newspaper. Of course and he does. And on the side, he he like writes like short uh, science fiction. Uh-huh. It wasn't called science fiction in the 30s. It was called um, uh, whatever it was called. I forget, oh. the, I forget the title of it. Oh, like 
Um, pulp? I don't know. So, something. Adventure Tales? Before it, was, before it was science, it was something like that. Yeah. But uh, uh, he's a very mediocre writer. Even, <laughs> even when he gets hired at the Daily Planet, he's considered to be like a very mediocre writer. It's one of my favorite details in that book, that like everything is filtered through the persona of Clark Kent. He that's... just consistently feels very mediocre all the time. Oh boy, that's great. It's a pretty good detail. So this, so, this reminds me actually, I, somebody, I, somebody was saying that like, that a lot of journalists try their hand at screenwriting. Yeah. And they're they're miserable at it. They're awful, and it has to. It comes down to the way that you process stories. As if you're a journalist versus you're an actual like fiction writer. Oh, really? I do forget what that difference was, but I remember. That's interesting. Yeah. In like the golden era of like Hollywood screwball comedies, if you look <laughs> at like the names of all the screenwriters out in Hollywood in the in the 30s and early 40s, they were all newspaper people. It was hmm. all journalists flocking out, and they all had this great uh, um, ear for dialogue. And they were able to turn out scripts like nonstop. That's really interesting. But they all died of alcoholism. Died of alcoholism. Yeah, it was real bad. I think they were very unhappy. <laughs> uh oh. So, so you make the leap from from doing your own work on the web to now you're being called in to do Deadpool and, mm. and kind of work in the big leagues. Is how was that adjustment for you? Oh boy, it was so interesting, and it it remains to be. I it's it's such a learning experience constantly, and I I really appreciate it for that. Um, so the first Deadpool story I did was um, part of one of these big superhero crossovers that they do. Um, like Marvel and DC like to do the big summer crossovers where they have some event that will change everything and then maybe like one person dies. Mm-hmm. But they'll be back in like four years. That's mm-hmm. usually how long it takes for a character to come back to life. Um, although Wolverine's been dead for a while. That one, that one stuck. I don't know. I had no idea. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's also like an old man version of him from another universe that's walking around, so he's not totally out. Okay, and uh, his uh, uh, a daughter made of his genetic material in a lab is now running around as Wolverine. Okay, <laughs> she has two claws on each hand instead of three. In, in a second, I want to ask how the hell you keep up with all this stuff. I don't. I, it's really hard. But Who does? Like, how do you? Tom Brevoort, uh, one of the editors at Marvel, is he is just. He has a mind for all of it. Mm-hmm. If you need to run some piece of continuity through the office, it usually goes through him. Um, and I forget his official title, but like I, I have to get like every character approved. Like if I want to put, you know, if I want to put Modok, uh, the mental organism uh, designed only for killing. Uh, <laughs> Uh, into my book, it has to go through this approval because they're like, oh no, you can't use Modoc. Uh, Modoc's fighting Captain America on the moon that month, so he's not going to be able to be on Earth during that time or something like that. Wow. Anyway, so back to like, so when I f- first got on, it was for this event called Fear Itself, which was basically, it turns out that there is this evil god of fear in the Norse world of Thor, the Thor stuff. And he brings a bunch of other Thor-like hammers that amp up these other characters who are uh, who are made into these horrible monsters, and they you know wreak havoc across the whole world. And anyway, there's a bunch of spin-off books about it. And Marvel had scheduled Fear itself, Deadpool, um, without checking in if the regular Deadpool writer could do it. He's like, no, I'm busy. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh crap. Well, we have to put a book out. It is scheduled. It has to come out. And then. Thankfully, the editor on Deadpool, Jordan White, um, remembered that we met at a convention like 
maybe a year or two earlier to that. And like, I was like, I sure would like to write Deadpool. <laughs> and you work in Marvel, right? And he's like, uh, well, I work on Hulk, so sorry. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out he eventually ended up on Deadpool. And he remembered that conversation. And then he called me and he was like, so we need this four-part story, which is a really big deal for a first-timer. Um, they usually don't give you something that much. And I really ate a lot of dirt in certain places, like having to write my first miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, because... Part of it was I also had to... So we're talking about adjustment from doing my own thing. First off, I'm not writing for myself to draw anymore. I'm writing for another artist. Was, uh, this guy named Bong Dazo, um, who I think lives in South America somewhere. Um, and so I suddenly had to like really be way tighter on my scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, comic book scripts look very much like uh, screenplays. Um, because you're just you're describing what will happen visually. You are you are basically making a list of instructions on what your collaborator should do, or not necessarily instructions, but like you know, it's just like it's a blueprint so that they know what they're supposed to draw, mm-hmm. or in like, and then also where what the people are supposed to say in the word balloons and all that stuff. So I was like, oh, I can't just say like, you know, Deadpool stands over there. I have to be like, Deadpool stands among a truly awe-inspiring growth of vines. and But he's not too impressed with it. So, like, he's got his hand on his hip and kind of aware. Something like, like mm-hmm. you kind of... The, like, the scripts with your comic artists, I think the best way I've heard it said is, like, they're meant to inspire your artist to greatness. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have to write in this way to, like, get your artist excited to draw something. And sometimes I'm good at that and sometimes I'm not. Um, Do you ever... Have you ever seen artwork based on your writing and been like, ugh? Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will not talk about specific instances. Um, Conversely, have you seen artwork based on your writing where you've been like, that's way better than what I had in mind? Oh, my goodness. That is, thankfully, much more typical. Okay. That is, that is, that's one of the best parts of the job. Um, especially this artist duo that I work with right now um, called Gurihiru. Uh, it's these two Japanese ladies. And they, we work so well together. I mean, part of it is just like they're incredible. And they, um, but like they know exactly what I'm trying to communicate in these scripts. And usually there's a little bit of space in between, you know, what the writer wants to happen and what the artist pulls off. But like, like I've never had a collaboration that worked as well as these two. And what's crazy about it is my scripts go through a translator. Mm -hmm. So their translator is pretty amazing too. Um, That must be a really like special bond to feel with somebody. Oh, yeah. It, it, like TJ and Dave describe when they play together that somehow they just their brains harmonize mm-hmm. somehow they're able to understand exactly what the other person means before they before they say it and I imagine it must be a very similar thing when you find a relationship with an artist that is able to just understand exactly oh where yeah from. it's huge yeah I feel I feel the same way with um, my artist on Adventure Time right now Ian McGinty like we clearly have a similar sense of humor so things I describe he knows how to pull off visually. And that's mm-hmm. a, that's a, um, it's comic. It's hard to find a comic book artist who really, truly understands visual humor. Um, and that was one of the early lessons I had was trying, I would try to describe these visual gags that I would want. Um, and the artist wouldn't really quite do it and it wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And, I, and part of that is on me for not describing it properly. Part of it's on me for kind of going in there and doing their job a little bit like maybe dictating a little bit too much what they mm. should be doing mm. when really I should be providing perhaps a, a broader sort of situation that they can then feel free to interpret. Like that was definitely my biggest problem with when I was working on Fear Itself Deadpool was I was 
trying to be way too controlling. Mm-hmm. And um, there were occasions where Bong was not having it, and he went off and did his own thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd have to rewrite dialogue so that it would make sense. Like I had a panel where I was like, I said I had two characters. Like I think I said that they were thrilled. And he had them both standing with their arms crossed and, and they were so mad. I was like, oh, well, this dialogue doesn't make sense anymore, does it? Um, but yeah, I was way, I was trying to be way too controlling with him. Is that, um, was that just like teaching the new guy a lesson? I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if he had any malice or ill intention behind it. I think he was just like, no, I, I do what I want. Uh-huh. I, and um, if, like, if I don't think you're right, I'm going to do what I want. And truthfully, that's how it should be. Um, uh, I, I go out of my way to tell, if I'm working with a new artist, I'll say, listen, I'm writing this full script. I am telling you how many panels, what happens in each panel. And sometimes I will call shots. Like I'll say, do a medium, do a close-up, you know, pan this way or whatever, just because that's how I'm picturing the scene in my head. Feel free to ignore it and, and go your own way. I do get a chance to polish the dialogue afterward, and I'll make it make sense, so don't worry about it. And usually they will just write from the script anyway, but it gives them the freedom. They know that they can, you know, make a decision that's going to be better than what I would because I'm not drawing it and I'm not thinking of it. And ultimately their art is what people are looking at on the scripts. So that's an interesting thing because you have, obviously a comic has to be worked out very, very precisely. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what you're saying is that there's there's breathing room for you and your collaborator to kind of together discover like a new life to yeah, the story. For sure. So so like can you talk a little bit about the the tension between having to turn in an exact number of panels on an exact number of pages, but still have the freedom to discover new things or, or, because or, I guess in my mind, what it suggests is that you and this other person are working together to kind of breathe life into a character. Mm-hmm. And that like when you're writing anything, sometimes the character themselves kind of resists the direction you're trying to push them in. Uh, yeah, that can, that can happen. Um, I guess, yeah, like, so I think a really great example of this, Excuse me. Uh, being pulled off successfully recently is this character Gwenpool mm. that I write, and that origin story is very long. Um, but she's basically she's a she's a teenage girl. Or is she an adult now? I think we decided she was eighteen, like on the dot, <laughs> so that she can. It's not horrible when she kills people. Um, <laughs> it's legally okay. I guess. At <laughs> yeah. We as a culture have we decided. have decided. No, Marvel was a little like like. Some of the stuff is a little weirder if she's like a kid acting like this. Like mm. she stopped a bank robbery by just like unloading like a bunch of machine guns into the bank robbers. And, okay. like, and it was a horrible scene and she got arrested for it. And anyway, so she's like she's this teenage girl in the Marvel Universe who knows that she's in the Marvel Universe. Like she is a comic book fan from the quote real world. Uh and so she believes in like that she is protected by plot devices and stuff like that. She's like, Well, I'm the hero in this book, I'm not gonna die. Or like, you know, I had to get a costume because if I'm just a random extra, I'm going to be crushed by a meteor, you know, the next time the Avengers are in town. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes she's right about that and sometimes she's wrong. And it, that's, it, that's kind of the, the conflict of the book is the universe fighting against her expectations of what it means to be a fictional character. Anyway, so this, this I got assigned this character and... Um, when we were originally working on it, I had her more in mind, like she was a little grittier and she was a little like hipper. Like she was kind of cool. 
And then when Kurihiro came in, they made her really cute. And they really amped up her expressiveness and her humor, and it completely changed how I thought about the character. And now I'm writing for this version that I know that they're drawing, and mm-hmm. I can start to see... like It helps me picture her a lot more better now that I know what they're going to do with it. Like, um, And that w- like it created a character that would not have existed without both of us working on it. Mm-hmm. When... So I want to talk a little bit about like the demands of like precision in, in the kind of script they have to turn in. Sure. And I want to talk a little bit about your process of writing. It, it, it apologies for my ignorance on no, this. Do, do you find yourself writing sort of from the outside in, outlining the events of a story and then kind of going from there, or do you write from the inside out of, of kind of like seeing the story through a character's eyes and, and kind of uh, uh, developing it, or is it like? going back and forth between those or do you have a different process altogether um it's right so i mean when you're talking about that precision like especially when you're working with a publisher it is a 20 page comic that comes out every month and so like you your story does have to fit within 20 pages they will not give you the money to put more pages in a book Mm -hmm. unless it's a very 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 special occasion um, that is extraordinarily unusual. So you do have to fit, you have to fit, you know, a beginning and middle and an end of some kind within 20 pages. But then also beyond that, you have to write stories in five, like five to six issue story arcs. Mm-hmm. That is currently the demand of the publisher right now um, because that's how many issues it takes to fill a trade uh, paperback when they do the collections. Mm-hmm. And the collections are where they really make their money. Um, so, like, you do have these restrictions, which means I absolutely have to outline. Like, yeah, I have to figure out, like, because if I'm suddenly a page over and this thing is super tight, I'm in big trouble and I have to cut stuff that was good. So I do outline. Um, most of the writing process is outlining. Um, and just, like, that's where I do a lot more of the exploration-y stuff, too. Like, I will, I will just sit down and start writing dialogue between two characters and see what happens. Like, if I know, I'm like, oh, I have three pages where they really just talk. All right, I'll just start the conversation now. And it's, it's very much just like improvising with yourself, you know, and I'll let it go long and then I'll see if there's good nuggets in there and then I'll start to pluck that out and maybe start doing panel divisions and start really seeing like what the visual moments are where a character should move or change a facial expression or have a reaction or, you know, maybe do um, an establishing shot to make sure everybody knows where we are, stuff like that. And then it starts to, to form up, but it's a, it's a bit of, both like sometimes I will give myself I'll say two pages here to do like I'm like do a joke about like this situation and then have this character enter and then a fight and then I'll give myself a little bit of breathing room to feel how that takes place Mm -hmm. but yeah you do have to be really aware of the economy of that the form demands because you can't just film stuff happening you have every every moment that happens you're asking your artist to make up a completely new illustration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like drawing sequential art is labor intensive. So that's another thing is I try not to average more than five panels per page um, because otherwise the artist has to do a thousand tiny drawings. And that doesn't look great either for a reader unless, again, the situation calls for it or it's interesting. So when you're handed a a uh, five-issue story arc, Mm -hmm. 
So do you begin with the, the general outline of issue one through five, here's the big picture, and then begin breaking it up into like five different acts and then breaking those down into three acts or, or like what, how have you found is the best way to organize your thinking on it so that you're able to, to be productive? Um, well, yeah, so well outside of when these deadlines start coming, I, when I'm just sort of brainstorming and thinking and sort of daydreaming, I might come upon an idea that I like, and then I'll be like, oh, well, let's, let's see how we want to explore that. And then I might start to have some other ideas, and I'll find that there's a theme. And then I'll be like, okay, let's make this arc kind of about this theme. So, for example, the first arc of Gwenpool is, it starts off with her thinking that she's the hero of her own book, and then immediately in the first issue, her sidekick, who you just met earlier in the book, is killed. He's killed right off uh, by the aforementioned Modoc. Um, and then Modoc is like, you work for me now. And she's like, oh my god, I'm a henchman. Like this is, so it's, a, it's like, this first arc is all about challenging her ideas about what it meant to be a superhero in the Marvel Universe um, through her having to become a henchman for a villain. Um, and then, of course, like this arc was only four issues because in this particular case, Gwenpool started off as these series of backup comics that I wrote in Howard the Duck, where there are these little 10-page comics about her and Howard the Duck. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to start off the trade with those. So your first arc is only four issues instead of five because it's about, it's about cramming it in the, into the book. So I was like, all right, well, we know by the end of this she's going to have to beat Modoc. Like, So I need an arc where I can have her conceivably... I can sneak in these little moments that I will then call back in her fight with Modoc, even though she is completely outclassed by him, but she has just the right couple of things I've already set up that she can use to, to defeat him. So I was like, all right, I'm going to have in this issue, she receives like this bare minimum of like gun training. And, like, and then this, we're going to sneak in this thing where it's like, oh, she can, she's really good at these leg sweeps or something like that. And then that turned into like, she was able to get off like this one crucial shot on Modoc's eye laser, and then she swept out two of his legs, and then is all this stuff like builds up from this entire arc that I wrote. So that's kind of what that looks like. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> when, like, how much, when, when you're handed a character or a story that you're not terribly familiar with, mm-hmm. um, but it's part of a larger unfolding saga, how long a period of time do you have to research it? And how, because like, let's say you're given a job writing for like X-Men. Right. I couldn't even begin to fathom what, an overwhelming undertaking that would be. There is so much shit to sort through. How do you find your bearings? I don't write X-Men. <laughs> like, I have not... I mean, that is a particularly... Like, that's a real mire, right. uh, their continuity. Um, but, like, even dealing with, like, the massive, like, summertime blockbuster crossover, yeah. there's so many universes to keep track of, and, and where do you start? Well, um... This is part of what makes Marvel's editors so great. They really help you out here. They, they know what you need to read, and they will send you PDFs of all the relevant comics. And if you think you need a character, you're like, oh, you know, like, like oh, I'm going to use Blade, but I don't know what Blade's been up to since his movie. Uh, and then I'll, and I just asked the editors, and I was like, oh, hey, I want to put Blade in this, but I don't know what his deal is. I'm like, oh, his last, his last appearance was in... Uh, you know, Mighty Avengers. So they just send me the PDFs of that whole run. I have to go read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading it right now. Um, 
So I guess I just spoiled it. Blade's going to be a guest star coming up. Um, we can edit all you, this down. No, no, no. You heard it here first. I don't care. This is going to be great. It's going to be great when Blade shows up in Gwenpool. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's going to happen in like February, I think. But So people will forget by then. That's February 2017. Write it on your calendars They're Right now. on your calendars. It, um, right, so the continuity and stuff like that. Yeah, editors will, will hand you the books you need. And um, you, it is a lot of research sometimes. Um, I recently wrote Vote Loki. And I had a lot of Loki comics I had to read. I like 40 or something comics I had to read to catch up with him. And, um, and then was told like, yeah, and, but also like the character's kind of changing, so you're not really, you're kind of kind of throw all that out. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't throw it out necessarily. Um, Loki fans go nuts for that because they love those issues and they should, they're great. But they're like, he's kind of evolving right now. So you can kind of hint at that stuff. But like this is more about this other story that you're doing. So it is a lot of juggling of that, of this continuity with modern takes. And Marvel has a shifting timeline. Like, Peter Parker was not born in the 50s anymore. You know, he was probably born in the 80s, I think. Um, So, like, you have these reference to these events, and you have to have this sort of shifted different version of it. It's a lot to keep track of. Uh, Honestly... I wish there were a tidier method of doing it, but ultimately it comes down to these editors have this magic knowledge that you can rely on. Like, and you know, if you have other characters, your scripts will go around to the other office. Like, um, currently, Gwenpool has, is in the middle of a team up with uh, Miles Morales, the the younger Spider Man, um, and so like my everything in my book with his crossover had to go through the Spider-Man office for approval. And like, I even had a thing in there that they did not approve. And I had to change the dialogue last second before it went to print. Hmm. seems like, uh, like a key element to all this is that you have to really love what you're doing. Oh boy. Yes, I do. It's fun. So I, you- I enjoy, I enjoy these little moments where they're like, Oh, here's this, like tweak this. I'm like, yeah, awesome. Do you feel that sense of like, you're participating in the unfolding of, of like this historical thing? <laughs> I mean, that's how the Marvel Universe does it. Like that, I mean, what we're talking about right now is not necessarily, I'm not necessarily talking about specific comic book issues, mm-hmm. but these, these, like Marvel has a shared universe and like it's, it's a big part of their appeal is that like all of these books are happening at the same time and like you know that all these people, you know, live and work together. So you do have to make sure that you don't contradict each other. So that's, yeah. just, that's a Marvel thing. But yeah, I do think it's fun and I, I like... I like getting to like, like if I'm a fan of something, like I'm a really big fan of the current Thor and the current Doctor Strange. So I was like, oh man, this is gonna be great. I can grab stuff from what's currently going on in that book that I love so much and put it in my book. And like, and then the fans like that too because it does reinforce the shared universe idea. We were talking before um, we started recording about all the projects that you're working on mm. right now. Without giving away anything that you can't legally give away, can you describe to everybody what your current schedule looks like? Oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, this is this is not a spoiler. Per- I guess you're, you're what my my bouncing around scripts that thing. Yeah. Okay, so the titles I am currently writing. So I am writing Doctor McNinja, um, the Adventure Time ongoing comic um, for Boom. Uh, I just finished writing Vote Loki, um, which is a four-issue miniseries, and I'm currently also writing Gwenpool. So, um, the, uh, Gurihiru, um, they, um, they're not as, like, their work is incredible, but they can't keep up with the schedule. They can't quite keep up with the monthly 
schedule, they take a little bit more than a month to draw the book. So what that means is that occasionally we need guest artists to come in. And when guest artists come in, I have to write scripts for both Guri Hero and for the guest artist because they all need to be drawing at the same time. Hmm. Uh, which means that I, even though the book is only coming out monthly, I can't just write a script a month. So right now we worked out a schedule where... So we have, we're currently in the story arc that's going to go... Let's see, we have a... <laughs> issue 7, 8, 9, 10. So we, there's a story arc with 7, 8, 9, and 10. And that's, that's going to be coming out soon. And once that's over, we have a guest artist coming in for issue 11. And then Guru Hero comes back for issues 12 and 13. And then that guest artist comes back for issues 14 and 15. And then 16 through 20 is going to be Guru Hero again. But we need to make sure that Guru Hero never gets a single day off from drawing. And I also have to keep this other artist drawing. So I just turned in the script for issue 9 last week. This week I have to turn in a script for the uh, for a, a project I can't name and almost did, um, but it's yeah that'll be announced soon. Um, and then I have next week I have to turn in a script for Adventure Time. I don't even remember which number we're up to in Adventure Time. I think it's like fifty eight or nine or something. And then the week after that I have to turn in issue um, eleven for Gwenpool, skipping ten. And because that's the guest artist one. And then I have to jump forward to issues 14 and 15 because that is what the guest artist will be working on after she's done with 11. And then I have to go back and finish 10 because by this point, Gary Hero will be done drawing issue 9. And then I have to jump forward and do issues, I guess that was 12 and 13 because then we have to get ready for when Gary Hero is done with 10. And then I jump forward to 15. And then I'm back in the normal time stream. On top of all of this, you are an active member of the sketch community here at Magnet. Sure Chris, am. why the hell would you include comedy on top of this? Are you insane? I like it a lot. Um, um, I mean, I, I should mention, like, my comics are comedic. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't write a serious book to save my life. I try to, and then it always never works out. Like, I didn't try to, like, vote Loki, like the story about Loki, the god of lies, running for president. You know, that's an I- ironic, like, premise but i took it pretty seriously i was like yeah i'm really gonna like i'm gonna have some stuff to say about politics i'm gonna make it known in this and then people were like it's a really funny book yeah. it's a funny book and i was like i wasn't trying but what's funny is some of my fans are like it's honestly some of his weaker material it's not very funny <laughs> <laughs> so like i'm like well that's what happens i if i don't try to be funny the people who like my funny stuff don't think it's funny but the people who aren't used to it do and i'm just, I have no idea do you find yourself bringing the same sensibility to your stage work, or do you think differently when you're writing for the stage? Um, it's a bit of both. Um, there's some stuff that so so yeah. I just I do. I love comedy. I love um, I I particularly love writing for like the stage. Mm-hmm. I for yourself or for other people. Both. Both. Um, I just like working in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I am much less interested in video stuff. I just I really like sort of live experience and playing around with that. And that's that's the sensibility I try to bring to sketch is I really try to take advantage of the fact that people are in the same room as the performers and are watching it live. And there are certain things you can do to take advantage of that situation and surprise people that don't work in video. Um, so like that's one of my main focuses with sketch. 
Um, this unfortunately leads to, I write very tech heavy sketches. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of sound effects and lighting effects and videos that have to go off at the exact right moment in mm-hmm. the sketch. And there's timing and like, like for example, I, one of the sketches I wrote for last season, um, is it like, um, Phil Collins in the air tonight start like starts the sketch off like it's just playing as the as the players are taking the stage and arranging the chair so it looks like it's an operating table and like putting the body on it and they all set up and then the lights up and they start talking about the surgery and how intense and fraught it is and the song is still playing just slightly in the background and very faintly and then all of these details keep popping up making the surgery more and more difficult for the young surgeon who has never done this spinal cord surgery before like her mentor faints because he thinks it's so gross someone comes in with a bunch of like dirty rags and like like potentially contaminating the situation they find out that the patient's like the Iranian ambassador and they find out that the Iranian ambassador is like the surgeon's husband's long lost father and it's just getting worse and worse and worse and then finally the surgeon is like, shut up. I just, I need to focus. And just as she starts to go in, the drum break hits mm-hmm. from in the air tonight. And one of the other surgeons in the room who hasn't been doing this the entire time just kicks the table over with the drum solo and like knocks the guy off the floor. And the other surgeon screams, you've ruined her life. But that it did take precise timing yeah. to get that sketched out exactly like that. To trick the audience into thinking that nothing's happening with the song, that it's just in the background. That, but you know, I love stuff like that. Like, yeah. I love I love treating comedy like like a magic trick, like you know, like fooling the audience. Which is interesting. I just saw your uh, uh, your one person show. Well, it's not exactly one person. Show. <laughs> no, sex, death, help. and Krang, mm-hmm. uh, which is hilarious and Thank had such you. a great aesthetic to it. Like, I, I love the sense of like it owed a lot of influence to horror and. Mm-hmm. sci-fi which is really exciting to watch but Orson Welles repeatedly recurs <laughs> with your very very solid Orson Welles impression yeah. but that's also interesting that sense of because that, that's like that defines Orson Welles his entire sensibility is is kind of treating performance as one gigantic magic act or play yeah, set yeah. Of, you know like constant slights of hands did you see F for Fake? yeah oh god I love that movie yeah it's a great movie Not so much is he a big guy for you? Um, not so much. I mean, as much as anybody is like, I mean, I'm like, I'm like, I was like, I say this as I, I picture like the framed record we have of him doing War of the Worlds. So I'm like, oh, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that particular run you're talking about was inspired by all of his advertising that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the, his, like his last film performance before he died. His later in life pissed off, not giving a shit, yeah. raging ego, mm-hmm. hilarious, cursing everybody out, yeah. that, that era of yeah. his life. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but particularly, right before he died, he did an ad for a copier. Uh, it's, it's, and it's just him going like, he's got like a book open and there's a skull next to him. And he's like, <laughs> what's in a name? Shakespeare said, well, in today's modern economy, everything <laughs> the Nikon copier has been servicing people for years I'm just like I'm like that's amazing I wrote that entire runner based off that one ad I was like what if he just keeps making ads after he dies and then it's just an exercise in like writing up a little list of like what are the most absurd things he could advertise video games and uh, diva cups <laughs> that, uh, that's 
hilarious. Ugh, <laughs> I can't even. It's so funny. Thank you. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> um, so what brought you to Magnet specifically? You and your delightful and brilliant other half, Carly mm-hmm. Minardo. You guys, I don't remember when I met the two of you. Did you guys both arrive here at the same time? Um, she, she started classes a few months before I did. Maybe like half a year before I did. Okay. Um, we... Um, we came to see uh, Nightfall on Moranga Island. The um, classic Justin Moran genre. Justin Moran musical that was, uh, had a run at the Magnet. And, Before um, heading to um, French. Yes. And um, because our friend and next door neighbor and his twin brother were both working on the music for it. Mm-hmm. Um, like they, I don't know if they, I think they helped compose the music, but they were also performing the musical accompaniment. And uh, we were just really taken with the place and the people. And um, we did the free class. Um, Nolan Constantino was in that free class too, um, funny enough, um, of Metal Boy. And, um, and then she went and took the class and I procrastinated <laughs> until, until she, and, and, and then, you know, she started doing these posters that we now see everywhere that Carly's done. And she uh, racked up enough um, credits that she just signed me up for class. She's like, you're just taking the damn class. Like, delightful. Like, you don't have to pay for it. I got it with my posters. Take the class. Delightful. <laughs> and then uh, was, I was immediately addicted to um, improv at that point and just blew through it and was eating up any opportunity I had to, to do improv. That, just to step back for a second, I don't know if that's something that everybody listening to this is aware of. Carly Minardo's aesthetic is a major part of the Magnet Theater aesthetic. It sure it, is it, now, What yeah. you probably visually associate with the Magnet look is largely by Carly's design. So mm-hmm. props to you, Carly. Always, always forever props, my sweet darling. Um, and I want to talk about your decision because you were improvising for a while and then <laughs> yeah, you, you, chose, you chose to quit and focus on, on writing. I'm curious if you could talk about that. Sure. Um, well, uh, so as, a, as I believe a lot of people do, um, and I'm comfortable to speak with you honestly about this, um, I think a lot of people have a real high off of their uh, level six, their team performance workshop experience. You know, they have their weekly show. Everything's going great. They have huge crowds. It's like, it's everything that has been promised from these classes. Like, it feels amazing going through the level six. And then you get onto a megawatt team, and it doesn't necessarily always work out the same way, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And that was my experience. Um, I was on two teams that got cut within three months of each other and because they weren't working um it was your decision you I, were, cut, I cut both those teams. you were right yeah. um yeah but i was like i was like oh this doesn't feel as great anymore um but beyond that i was really really obsessive about improv i was I, it was a new thing to learn. Like it was a new thing to learn and to get better at. And it was, you know, and you get the reinforcement of the live laughter, and the friendships have become so important. Like everything. Like I just was so in it, and I was chasing it. Like real, I was always like, before every show, I'd be on a train, I'd be looking through my notes. I'm like, what is it that I want to get better at that I'm really focusing on tonight? And if that didn't work out, I'd be really down. Um, and I was going after improv with uh, an obsession that I was 
neglecting my actual career mm-hmm. uh, and Pro- should have been probably not an uncommon thing. Yeah. And I should have been putting it towards my career. Like I was broke and my career was not in a great place. And when those teams got cut, I really realized I was like, I, this, I, this is a dramatic way to put it, but I see it now that it was like a harmful addiction mm-hmm. improv mm-hmm. Um, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously other people can do improv in moderation. Um, but uh, yeah, so I just, I had to quit it completely. Like after leaving Megawatt, the Megawatt program, I also quit my indie team, Cool Blanche, which was amazing. And that was very hard to do, but I was like, I just need to completely stop doing improv. Yeah. Um, of course, I was already like scheduled to be in a director series like a couple months later, but I was like, well, I'm not going to drop that. That would be rude. Um, but yeah, and I, I completely quit improv to focus on my writing. Um, but I still like live comedy, so I, I got into sketch. Yeah. I, I, look, I always respected the way that you approached that. Thanks. Because I think that like, I've seen this happen a bunch of times. People become disillusioned or it doesn't work out and, and either they will become despondent and, and it just like ruins their life which always strikes me as like a little bit extreme <laughs> or they like double down and begin kind of like placing their anger on, on wherever they can place their anger and, and make it even more important that they get it right. And sometimes none of that happens and people are just fine. But like, <laughs> yeah. I, I respected how open and honest and realistic you were about it and, 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 um, how responsible I think you were about it too. Like, oh, thanks. You know, it, it was just like, oh, that's very logical, very sensible. <laughs> and I remember like having the conversation with you where you had said like, I don't have anything to show for this. Right. If I'm going to put this much work into something, I want to create something that actually has like. That's nice that to, now, now that you're, you're saying that, it's nice to know that that wasn't me creating this narrative in my head of like, because you, know, you make up your, your history and you make up this grand story for yourself. I'm like, yeah. that's what I know now. I'm like, I'm glad to know that that's actually what I was feeling in that moment, that I'm not making up this justification in the background. You know? So it's good to know that I said that then too. Well, you were, I, I'll tell you what I, what I, uh, I mean, I hated losing you from the show, but um, what Thank I- Thank you, I'm sorry. That's okay. We, we all, we all, we're okay. What I what I did like a lot about it though was um, you communicated very well what you were thinking and feeling. Oh, thanks. Which is also part of like when you get like locked in that thing of like I don't know if this is part of the narrative that I invented for my own personal mythology. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty safe bet that that what you're looking back on you were not communicating to other people very well oh, what you're thinking or feeling. It's in like those ambiguous things that we end up having to go back in and sort of patch up those memories, I think. And, oh, and, yeah. You know what I mean? Like recast ourselves to give ourselves a little bit more of like a oh, noble motivation. Sure. I catch myself doing it sometimes where I'll start repeating this lie back to myself because mm-hmm. it's just a more comfortable memory. I'm like, no, that's not how that went down. Sure. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, you're replacing it over time with a much better memory yeah. that lets you get by. No so harm, gl- no foul. We all do that. So I'm glad that one was real. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, all right, real quick. Three wonderful things off the top of your head about Carly Minardo. Oh, boy. Uh, she's my favorite person to make laugh. Um, to Number get, one. Yeah, to get, to get a real <laughs> generous laugh out of her is, is a wonderful experience. Great. Um, I th- she is a much better artist than I am, like a visual artist. Mm-hmm. And I, it, uh, it's... 
I, it makes me respect and love her so much for it because I'd be like, you are so much better at this than me. We sit down and we do it next to each other. Every day we have our office, we, we, have, our, we, have, a, we have a long table like this one that we share. And I'm drawing my comics and she's writing an illustration. I look over and like, you're so much better than I am. Two. Uh, two. That was number two. Um, let's see. I mean, I'm just trying to pick a favorite. I mean, she's funny. She's like, she's one of the funniest people I know. Um, and that's, that was, I mean, I'll be completely honest, major factor into dating and marrying her. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to surround myself with funny people mm-hmm. and she's the funniest. Uh, you know, I read somewhere that uh, there's an evolutionary advantage to being funny. Ooh, good. <laughs> I, I think it's probably true. Because you can't fake, you can fake being smart in a number of like academic ways. You know, you can like replace, you can talk a big talk, mm. but really be a big dummy. Boy, yeah. But it takes like a living. Doing my best not to do that here today. Me too. <laughs> that it's a lifelong battle for me. But but like you have to be smart to be funny, mm. and you can't fake it. There's no way. It, it's like a living kind of intelligence. Like some people can dress themselves up to look really smart and say all the smart things, but you realize that they're just like hollow, vacant, stupid people who are just mm-hmm. parroting shit back at you. And then when you have people who are genuinely, truly funny, you're looking at an active, probing, curious intelligence actually like being responsive to the world yeah. around it. So the argument behind this was that's one reason why why funny people are so attractive and why funny people seek out other funny people, which I happen to think is like, yeah, brilliant. I love that. Great. Thank you. Compliment from science. How long have you and Carly been together? Um, we started dating in 2006. So a long time. Yeah. It's been harder to keep up. Like I, I know how long we've been married. We've been married for five years. Yeah. Coming up on six. Well, not coming up so far, but yeah. Um, so yeah. I've been with Megan for a long time, too, and as cliche as it sounds, uh, the fact that she makes me laugh is the number one feature that makes me wake up every day so grateful to continue to be with this wonderful person. Nothing beats making each other laugh. Yeah. Great. We have, we have two identical great relationships. Hooray for <laughs> us. All right. Time to play a little game called... Get to know each other. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be five minutes of a dueling monologue hotspot. The right. idea is I'm going to give a suggestion to inspire whatever off the top of your head comes up. Um, and then as you're talking, whenever I feel ready, I can cut you off to talk about whatever that inspires for me. And then as I'm talking, whenever you're ready, you can cut me off. And we go back and forth for about five minutes or so. Okay. Don't share anything you don't wish to share with uh, uh, the, what do you call this, the radio public? Podcast with you, public? With you, listener. the dear listener. All right, so the suggestion is going to be uh, third time is a charm. Oh, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> okay, um, when I was uh, in high school, um, the, uh, the, our, we got a new YMCA that had an ice skating rink, which was a huge deal, and so my high school put together a hockey team, like I was, and I joined it because I really liked roller hockey so i was like oh man i can join the high school um hockey team that's so cool and i still think it's cool that a high school has a hockey team um and so our first year we were really really bad and uh like literally would fall on our asses on the ice and stuff like that like my first uh date ever was uh at an ice skating rink at clove lake park 
I think one of my first dates with Megan was also at the same ice skating rink, if I remember correctly. Um, and I remember we had to take a bus to get there, and it took like hours. There was something wrong with the bus route, and we had to like <laughs> transfer a couple of times, and it took forever. And it was just this real awkward me and, and this girl who I'd asked out sitting awkwardly, not having anything to say to each other for hours as we went, and both were miserable ice skating. My, um, my big um, cool first date move when I lived in New York was to take girls to improv shows. Um, I would I would be like oh like like you ever heard of UCB and they had it and I'd be like this is gonna be amazing they make it up like on the spot and it's always great it was crazy it was I was I was seeing shows where it was like Rob Hubel and like Paul Shear like just randomly going on dates to these shows but like that was like my big cool move was was taking uh, taking girls to improv shows. that was the closest I felt. Uh, as a younger person to actually being my age because I, I, I have I, I feel like I'm aging backwards I feel like I was like very middle-aged when I was like <laughs> 10 or so and like at some point I'm gonna like kind of like catch up overlap with other people in my generation and then become a little bit younger like I always get into like music and I get into like uh, uh, culture way way after everybody else got into it but like when I discovered UCB I was like 20 22 23 and I remember the excitement of like going down into that basement they had just opened up their theater I actually I started going to UCB like the last week that they were on their 22nd street space um I was really excited to look like a wizard in old age uh this is something I really wanted I was really looking forward to getting gray hair and maybe being able to grow a beard but I couldn't grow a beard for most of my um post pubetic life whatever you want to say that um and I am finally getting gray hairs in my beard now I can grow a beard and I got gray and I do genuinely like I look at it with pride I'm like I'm getting I'm turning into more of a wizard I too have exactly that same pride (laughs) and for as long as I can remember I have wanted to have a beard and gray hair and glasses I remember being a little kid and watching Harold Ramis and Ghostbusters and looking at his glasses and saying I want glasses. And I still to this day believe that I willed myself into having bad eyesight so that I could have glasses and eventually grow up. I got glasses way before I needed them too. I like a girlfriend talked me into it because she liked how I looked in them. And like, I went to an optometrist and I was like, you kind of have like, you might need some corrective vision, but it's not a huge deal. I was like, well, my, this girlfriend, this, this first serious girlfriend of my entire life is into it. So we are, we are getting these Rivers Cuomo glasses, <laughs> sir, and I am going to be wearing them. Uh, um, I've had a mustache since I was 16 years old. It has never once come off my face. The beard I've shaved a few times, but the mustache has not been off my face since I was 16 years old. I have dreams about shaving all the time, and they're always terrifying. I wake up in the morning and I pat my beard for a thing. Oh, thank God, it was just a dream. I do exactly the same thing. <laughs> I have chronic anxiety dreams that I accidentally shave my yep. mustache off. Mm-hmm. And that is getting <laughs> to know each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, I thought that was a very successful first very one. Successful. I almost like the idea that the, the nature of this game is to eventually like leap around until we find like that thing that we strongly have in common. I think that's makes a super of an idea. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like, it seems like that would have to happen, especially as you amp up the pace as it goes forward. Yeah, invariably. That's an exciting, mm. I like that. And good luck with your further guests. Thank you very much. I still, I don't, I don't know if you have like, I'm beginning to gray now. All my friends have grayed way before me. Everyone who I grew up with great has been graying for years now i'm only now getting my first gray hairs i'm thrilled by it great can't wait 
That, 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 what is it, like a DNA death, hair by hair or something like that? I'm yeah. Not sure. Yeah. Okay. Now we're moving on to our final segment of uh, uh, today's episode, and this is called mm. Improvising a Very Serious Scene Opposite a Jar of Pickles. You were not kidding the other day. Oh, no, my real God. Real serious thing. So we have here a jar of pickles. <laughs> this Evan jar told of me pickles. about this yesterday, and I thought he was kidding. I thought he was doing a bit. Yeah. No, we have here a jar of pickles, and oh. this jar of pickles is going to be your scene partner. Right. I'm going to give you a situation. Here's the rule for improvising a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. Mm-hmm. Your job is to do the best scene that you can for the next, like, two, three minutes. Okay. Uh, um, and you'll speak directly to the jar of pickles. Uh, um, but if you ever, like, address it, you have to address it as jar of pickles. Got it. That's always the name. So here's the situation for, for improvising with a jar of pickles. You have uh, um, recently been getting your life kind of back in order. And uh, uh, like you had kind of like a dark period there. You were having to go through like therapies and you had like a little bit of like a drinking problem and whatnot. You had some like addictive things, you know, to kind of like cover up some like real like serious insecurities. But you finally get your life back on track. And uh, you happen to be out one night and you go to a restaurant with, with, with a, a young lady and the date goes really well. And as you're leaving the restaurant, you notice that sitting at the restaurant bar was your old junior high school bully this Mm. guy like really fucked with you like really at a time when you were really vulnerable this guy was just like really really shitty to you and now it's like the perfect opportunity to finally have the confidence to tell this guy everything you've always wanted to tell him but you notice boy this is a lot you notice that he's just like (laughs) he looks really fucked up and it's like really clear that like this guy peaked at like 19 Um. and he's got like he's like dirty and scraggly and they're cutting him off at the bar his hands are shaking with delirium tremors and maybe there's like you notice like a pee stain on his pant leg so you have this moment where you're gonna go confront your junior high school bully Mm. but you also like feel really bad for the guy and your junior high school bully is this jar Jar of pickles. pickles Uh, no, I, I, I actually, I know this, I know this jar of pickles. Hey, jar of pickles. Um, do you, yes, it's Chris from, uh, from, from Bishop Walsh. Um, what are you, no, it's, it's, he's fine. He's fine. fine. Um, what are you, what are you doing in the city? It's cool. It's cool. You, um, you wanted to see Trump Tower. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um. I see you've actually, you've got a uh, New York deli-style pickles t-shirt on today. That's cool. You came in, you bought the merchandise. That's awesome. Do you, you do remember me, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, Jar of Pickles. We, we had all of our math classes together for every single year. And you, because of P being specifically where it is behind the alphabet, in H and the grid selection of the rooms, you sat directly behind me for every single class for all four years of high school, and you would, yes, you would, uh, you would write fag on the back of my neck uh, most days. I did remember, I did, no, uh, yeah, I, um, I did do a short story about that at one point. <laughs> um, you didn't read it. No, your your ex girlfriend told you about it. That's great. Um, so, what do you? What brought you to this restaurant? Bar open at noon. Yeah, cool. That's great. 
Um, I well, I um, I'm here with a. Di- um, well, she went to the bathroom, so I'll just keep talking. Um, I listen. I I I have composed like a Facebook message to you and deleted it several times. Jar of pickles. Um, and this isn't going to come out right now because I'm forgetting half of... Well, I, no, I don't. I don't remember doing that to you. No, you, you, you tormented me. Okay, okay, yeah, I forgot I got you kicked off the basketball team. <laughs> That's a very serious scene with a jar of pickles. I got to compliment you on that, not only for your level of detail, (laughs) but also for the interesting psychology that you gave the jar of pickles. I like the way that the jar of pickles in that scene saw himself as the persecuted. Doesn't everybody? Yes, we do. I feel I feel like that was a cheap trick because I thought it was I thought that was obvious. Like everybody thinks they're the victim. Well, I think that it showed great empathy on your part. (laughs) You had the moment to really cut this jar of pickles down, but you didn't. You 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 saw it through his eyes, and I appreciate that. Well, he looks very sympathetic here before me. Yeah, B and G New York deli style pickles. They're probably delicious. One quart. Chris, is there anything that you would like to plug in our final moments of today's podcast? Um, I'll tell you what. I am real excited for this next season of Sketch at the Magnet starting up very soon. Um, we, um, I am not currently on a team. Um, my sketch team, uh, Dreadful Affair, was retired. Um, but I feel confident that I will be on another one um, within days <laughs> um, because that's how it works. Fabulous. But I can't wait for for new sketch. And um, been talking to chat. We've got some some cool changes in the sketch program that um, I will not talk about because it's not my place. But I think people will be excited about them. Let's get chat on the program and really get into the nitty gritty of this one. I'll oh, you should. Stir up a little controversy with Chet Siegel there. What controversy? I don't know. I'll find out when These I talk with you. great things that are coming down the way. Oh, I can't wait. That Everyone will agree. Fabulous. The sketch program, incidentally, really quick, has evolved so much in the last, like, I'd say two years. Yeah, big time. Um, I mean, yeah, I, uh, I think that's, <laughs> I guess that's the timeline within I joined. Yeah. Um, I certainly have felt it. It seems like they're just getting better and better. Yeah. Chris Hastings, pleasure talking with you, sir. Thank you very much, Lewis. Congratulations on your continued success. Oh, thank you. May it never, ever stop. <laughs> thank you, Chris, and thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been the return episode of the Magnet Theater Podcast. A couple of other big thank yous, of course. First off, to our producer, Evan Ford Barton, to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, to our executive producer, Ed Herbstman, and to all of the fine people here in New York City, the only city in the world, as far as this guy is concerned. If you enjoyed the program, please give us a positive shout out on iTunes or whatever platform you happen to have. We're going to be playing around with this new interesting format monologue hotspot getting to know each other and doing a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles and we want your suggestions for what to do with those so if you have a suggestion for a situation in which a great improviser or comedian can do a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles please tweet us at magnet theater 
That's all you have to say, right? Just tweet us at Magnet Theater. Amazing. It was incredible. And if you have a particular topic of conversation that you would like to hear a get-to-know-each-other uh, a bit around, please tweet us at Magnet Theater. It's exactly the same handle. You can just go ahead and do that. We will follow it. We will honor your request to the best of our abilities. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you once again, Chris Hastings. Goodbye, everyone! Yay! You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by The Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.